0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 16. In the last episode, I provided a high-level overview of the Copper Age, focusing mostly on how it unfolded in the Middle East and likely impacted the Old Testament narrative. Though most of the Pentateuch was written after the Copper Age had passed, and while the region was somewhere between the Bronze and Iron Ages, But, the Copper Age was necessary in understanding what had been and what was to come. I also dove into how the metal casting process worked then, and how in many ways it's not dramatically different from the process we use today. And it was a cast of gold that led to the golden calf found in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the Bronze Age and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. But before starting on the Bronze Age, it's important to understand what the metal bronze is and how it's made. Unlike copper, gold, silver, lead, and most of the metals that preceded it, bronze does not occur naturally and is instead an alloy made mostly of copper but includes tin and even possibly the addition of aluminum, nickel, zinc, manganese, or arsenic. It can also include silicon or phosphorus. And it's the addition of these other ingredients that give the alloy the characteristics that were useful enough to change society, and cause an error to be named for it. The alloy is more functional than the preceding copper because it's harder, stiffer, and more ductile. Later, it was found to be more machinable than many other metals, but this was well after the Bronze Age. Historically, bronze was about 90% copper and 10% tin, though that is more of an average. As you may suspect, there was no standardized production methods, and the recipe varied greatly depending on who was making it, along with what materials were available at the time and place. Archaeologists tend to group their finds into two different types of bronze. What's known as classic bronze is a 90 to 10 ratio of copper to tin and tended to be used for cast objects, like small sculptures and small tools. There's also mild bronze, which had more copper, usually around 94%, to 6-ish percent tin. This was more malleable and could be hammered into thinner sheets and later would be used for things like bronze armor. So, in equipping an ancient soldier, weapons like daggers, along with spear and arrow tips, would be made from the harder classic bronze, and the helmets and body armor were made from the more shapeable version. And over the thousands of years that have passed since, the overall recipe hasn't changed much, with the most widely used modern bronze consisting of an 88 to 12 ratio. There's another benefit to bronze. While it does corrode, more accurately described as oxidizes, this is only superficial as the oxidized layer, at first copper oxide, then copper carbonate, protects the metal underneath. This is how small bronze figurines have survived for millennia. Though in the right, maybe better termed, the wrong environment, it can degrade to copper chloride and continually degrade, a condition known as bronze disease due to the eventual complete destructiveness. Developing at the same time was brass, which also includes copper, but instead of tin, it usually includes zinc. In ancient societies, it tended to come along at the same time as bronze, and was very useful, despite it being a softer metal. And, both brass and bronze tended to contain both zinc and tin, so the line dividing the two was not exactly well defined. For this reason, many museums in their current displays tend to be a bit pedantic and note that a material is neither brass nor bronze, but is instead a copper alloy, and therefore the labeling of the display remains correct. The era, though, is known as the Bronze Age, not the copper alloy or brass age. I'm not sure how much of that really matters. To add to the confusion is the word bronze itself, which may be nothing more than a mistranslation of an ancient Persian word for brass, a word that was then translated to Greek, to Latin, to Italian, and finally to Middle French. Besides the uses in weapons and armor, early bronze was frequently used in artwork, In the 7th century BC, the Assyrian king Sennacherib recorded that his artisans were the first to cast monumental bronze statues using two-part molds instead of the traditional lost-wax method. These statues were huge, weighing up to about 30 tons. His artisans, along with others casting bronze statues, were likely relying on a curious trait of molten bronze. As it cools, and just before it sets, it expands slightly. This allowed the metal to fill every nook and cranny of a mold, and filled in all of the intricate details that had been set in such a negative mold. In ancient Greece, and even despite their numerous surviving marble statues, bronze statues were held in even higher regard, though few survived to the modern day. Which begs the question, why? Especially considering how the metal tends to be corrosion resistant. After the collapse of Greek society and how it gave way to the Romans and eventually a fragmented Europe, so in late antiquity and the medieval period, bronze was harder to come by, and many of these statues were melted down and recast into more useful items like weapons and coins. Of course, Marble cannot be melted, and those statues and figurines tended to survive, albeit usually in a very weathered condition. The Romans, though, made reproductions of Greek bronze statues, made from marble, so there are at least surviving facsimiles. Like any material that's going to change society, bronze had other uses. Before glass, polished bronze was used for mirrors, We see this in Exodus 38, where a bronze basin was made from the mirrors gathered from Israelite women. Of course, while I'm on that chapter, there were many objects found in and around the tent of meeting that were made from bronze. The altar of burnt offering was made from acacia wood overlaid with bronze, potentially the malleable sort with the high copper content. All of the utensils used at the altar were bronze. The pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the firepans. Cast rings, grates, poles overlaid with it. All of this leaving no doubt that the Copper Age had passed, and their feet were firmly planted in the Bronze Age. Circling back to the mirrors of the era, they tended to be slightly convex, so that the user's entire face could be seen in a small mirror, What's a bit surprising about this is that as bronze was discovered throughout the world, mirrors tended to quickly follow in seemingly independent discoveries. In Egypt, dating to the Middle Kingdom, so between 2040 and 1750 BC, mirrors have been uncovered from the era. This means they were in use in Egypt when Joseph, Jacob, and family were living there. It also gives credence to the mirrors repurposed for the altar by the wandering Israelites. They certainly would have had access to such accoutrements. And, such bronze mirrors were so useful they were still being manufactured as late as the 18th century, and that's A.D., at least in Japan. There's another historic use for bronze, and that was for coinage. This continues through today, as many coins we think of as being made from copper are actually an alloy of copper tin and a small amount of zinc, which makes the coin actually bronze. Though, since 1982, the U.S. penny has been made from zinc on the inside, with a plated exterior of copper. But, for nearly 100 years, between 1864 and 1962, With the exception of a few years during World War II, the penny was made from bronze. As you probably know, in many sports, most notably the modern Olympics, a medal made of bronze, medal with a D, is awarded for third place. First gets a gold medal and second a silver. In this case, the bronze is meant to symbolize the era of heroes and when man began to tame his environment. Which gets me to the Bronze Age. Why did this occur before the Iron Age? Well, the natural progression was pretty straightforward. Man learned to make copper from smelting. Then, and probably at first accidentally, it was found that adding tin to the mix changed the properties. And tin was an easy addition considering its extremely low melting point of about 450 Fahrenheit, 232 Celsius. Copper melts at a higher temperature of nearly 2000 Fahrenheit, almost 1100 Celsius. Iron requires nearly 1000 Fahrenheit more heat. When copper and tin are combined to form bronze, the melting point varies based on the proportion of each, but in general it tends to melt around 1750 Fahrenheit, about 950 Celsius. That, too, makes sense, as it's between the melting point of the two main ingredients. It also helps to explain when repurposing ancient bronze was an easy alternative, as it was easier to melt pre-existing bronze than it was to melt the ingredients to make the material anew. And, despite its lower melting point, bronze is about 10% denser than steel. It also conducts heat better which may be why it was used in the ancient Israelite altars. Later, much, much later, it was found to conduct electricity better than iron or steel. In our modern world, though, it tends to be more expensive, so it's used less than ferrous metals. Late in the Copper Age, and probably by accident, someone figured out that if you combine copper with another metal, you ended up with something better and better it was both harder and more durable. And getting both of these qualities out of the same material is harder than it sounds. Usually when something is hard, it's also brittle. This quality is why copper replaced stone. Obviously, stone is harder than copper, but stone is also more difficult to shape and does not hold an edge well, like what is required in a cutting tool. How bronze was first smelted has yet to be determined, but the generally accepted theory is that it happened by chance. Similar to lead, tin, gold, and copper smelting and casting I covered in the last episode. What is known is that no matter how it first came about, it spread throughout the region quickly, though the varieties of bronze smelted were almost as plentiful as the number of smelters themselves. The point being that there was no standardized process and everyone was making it up and making it better as they went along. It was at this point in many regions that brass became just as widely used as bronze. The Greeks would add lead to their bronze, making it even more pliable, and it's thought this bronze was used in their ship construction. Modern bronze used in bearings tend to also use a bit of lead in the specific alloy. Bring these two together, and add to the mix that bronze is resistant to saltwater corrosion, and the material has been used throughout history as ship fasteners, especially before the advent of stainless steel. It's also used in propellers, and their water-exposed bearings. This version of bronze was used to make the barrels of early cannons. In those weapons, and before better tolerances were developed in the machining process, iron cannonballs would tend to get stuck in an iron barrel. But bronze tended to exert less friction on such cannonballs, and therefore they would not only misfire less, but the cannonballs would exit with a higher velocity. This lower friction is also why bronze is still used frequently in metal-on-metal applications, like small bearings in cars and electric motors. And finally, for the material... There is one last use for it that has spanned thousands of years, and that's bells. And not the typical hand bell, but the huge church bells. The oldest known large copper bell is actually in China, and dates to about 2000 BC. This is well before the Exodus, and not what you are probably thinking of with a large bell, a church bell. Those were typically first found in Western Europe, and are associated with the spread of Christianity. Large church bells are mentioned in historical documents as early as 670 AD in England, and within 100 years they were incorporated into the actual church services. It became so widespread that the specific alloy of bronze used for church bells became known as bell metal. It tended to be a mixture of mostly copper, augmented by tin, this time in an 80 to 20 ratio. So, much different from the older alloys. Sometimes, a small amount of lead was added, hoping to increase the durability. Not to get too stuck on bronze bells, but the two most well-known bells are also cast in bronze. In the U.S., the one-ton Liberty Bell was initially cast in 1752 and is 70% copper, 20% tin with the rest being mostly lead and other minor ingredients. And apparently in its casting, the bellsmith substituted cheaper ingredients hoping to save a dime. Though it really wasn't a dime, as those weren't around then. It's thought the cheapening of the materials is what led to its famous crack. This bell is inscribed with a passage from Leviticus 25 and reads... Proclaim liberty throughout all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof. A passage referring to the 50-year Jubilee celebration, and from the King James. Least a version of the King James. As I covered in one of the podcast's very first episodes, the King James Version we have wasn't pulled together until 1769, so 17 years after the bell was cast. The other famous bell is Big Ben, of course, located at the Palace of Westminster in London. The original 16-ton bell was cast in 1856, but cracked while being tested, and before it was installed at the top of the tower. Two years later, in 1858, a replacement was cast, and it was smaller, 13.5 tons. I couldn't find a reliable source for the breakdown of the metal, though the patina corrosion clearly indicates it's substantially bronze. And that's enough of the bronze bell rabbit hole, and the material bronze. Now on to the age it brought about. In the Old Testament region, the Bronze Age began around the mid-4th millennium BC, and ran for about 2,000 years. And, just as the text in Deuteronomy alludes to, This means the transition to the later Iron Age was occurring just as the Israelites were arriving in Canaan, after their nearly half-century of wanderings. And, just like the transition from the stone to copper age, the transition to the bronze and then to the iron wasn't at a set date and tended to be fluid. The remnants of this are even seen today, or at least recently. Some of the first rifles were flintlocks, relying on a type of stone to work. Copper is still used throughout society, as is bronze, like I outlined a few minutes ago. The same was true then, albeit iron wasn't in predominant use before the Iron Age. The point is, just because of the passing of a date doesn't mean that everything transitioned. Also remember that the reason it's an age isn't just because of the new material, but due more to the impact the material had on society as a whole. What made bronze better than copper? The tools made from it were harder, and therefore more durable than copper. It was also less brittle than stone. This led to more productive agriculture, whether from better plows to more efficient axes. There were also new building materials, like decorative tiles. The first bronze was an alloy of copper and arsenic, like what was seen in the tools and hair of Utsi the Iceman. This alloy is known as arsenic bronze and is sometimes found naturally, though even in that era, such finds were rare, intended to come from combining copper with tin, or arsenic, or any of the other listed metals to form the alloy. The oldest finds of this arsenic bronze have been uncovered in Iran and date to the 5th millennium BC. It would be much later, in the third millennium B.C. that tin was finally combined with copper to form the more widely known variety of bronze. This was in Serbia in around 4500 B.C. In just a few hundred years, the same type of bronze was popping up all over the region, and world for that matter. In Egypt, Iran, Mesopotamia, and even in China, though this was likely developed independently. When this happened, The first smelters happened upon an alloy that was stronger, easier to cast, and used a more easily controlled smelting process. When one thing replaces another widely used thing, like when copper replaced stone, or bronze replaced copper, or even within periods when tin alloyed bronze replaced arsenic, it was nearly always because the new material's benefits in production are simpler, or the material is better, or in the best of cases, both. As for bronze, it's only rare that soil containing both copper and tin ore is found near each other. But this doesn't even happen in the region where the Bronze Age arrived first. Such tin ores tended to be rare and have been uncovered in places as disparate as Great Britain, Thailand, and Iran. Instead, usually copper is found in one location, and tin ore is nowhere nearby. So for bronze to really come on the scene, trade had to first be there. And this leads to yet another reason why the copper age preceded the bronze. Stone allowed some labor differentiation, but copper made agriculture more productive and allowed the development of other items that would eventually lead to trade. And the trade led to copper coming from one place and tin from another, all ending up in the same smelter where they would eventually be combined. It's thought that this tin would come to the Middle East, from as far away as the British Isles. Among the oldest bronze finds were in Sumer, in what is today Iraq and Kuwait. These were usually small figurines and hand tools, and while crude, especially when considered next to later examples, the figurines were still lifelike near Ur, which was a Sumerian city-state, and what were probably mixing trays had been uncovered. There were also jugs of mixed materials where the container portion of the jug was bronze and the spout silver. Other plates and saucers, along with drinking cups, have been found. There was something else that may have originated in Sumer. When a building was built, in the foundation, they would leave a record concerning who constructed the building, These were sometimes engraved on a bronze or copper peg, and many of these have survived the thousands of years since, testifying to the staying power of the alloy. They would also embed small copper or bronze figurines in these foundations. The Sumerian bronze was of a surprisingly consistent quality, usually containing between 11 and 14% tin, seemingly indicated a somewhat refined smelting process About the same time, alloys containing zinc were being developed in Cyprus and in the Levant. And before writing in, do recall that this was before God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So you can't call it Israel, but you have to call it something. Since this metal contained zinc, not tin, these were the first non-producers of brass. Like bronze, this process too would be refined over the centuries and millennia that followed the output from the Bronze Age tin and copper mines was significant. One such mine, found in the Alps of what is today Austria, had over an estimated 20,000 tons of copper excavated then smelted. This was a type of copper known as black copper, and after smelting was about 90% copper, with the balance being impurities. This smelted copper was formed into slugs, each of which weighed a few pounds or kilograms. These slugs were then traded and transported elsewhere, where they would be further refined with tin added to form bronze, or zinc for brass. About 1500 BC, bronze had spread from the Middle East across the north of Africa all the way to the British Isles. It also went eastward through India and as far as China. Yet another reason why it's known as an age. By this time, in North Africa, in Carthage, they had learned to use bronze for gears, along with the usual knives, needles, weapons, jewelry, and various hand and agricultural tools. Finally, there's another change that bronze brought, and that was its use as currency, though not in the way we think of currency. In Europe, there have been uncovered stockpiles of socketed axe heads, which you would think would be indicative of tool production or storage. But in most cases, these axe heads had nowhere. Obviously indicated they weren't really used as axes. They were likely cast and readied for sale, and as such held value. Value they would retain as they traded hands. Essentially an early form of currency, maybe more akin to currency within a barter system. But you have to start somewhere, and in many regions they started with axe heads. There were likely other things of value used as currency, like the season's wheat harvest, but archaeologists aren't going to find a stash of that perishable a few thousand years later. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Iron Age. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.